It's the opening scene of The Greatest Showman. If you know anything about the movie, this is what is about to be in his life. The Greatest Showman does something that quite a few producers are doing now. It comes from the Greeks and their playwrights. They start with an action scene in the middle, and then the movie takes you back to the beginning. Anybody know what that's called? Somebody said it. Immedia res. In the middle of action. Today's story, as we go through the story, I felt like we need to start in the middle of the action. And then we're going to go backwards to see where we are at. So as we dive in today, you can go to 1 Kings chapter 12. If you need to use your index at the front of the Bible, it's okay. It's in the Old Testament. We're still in the Old Testament in the story, week number 14. But we're going to be back in 1 Kings. We took a look at Solomon last week. Guess what? We revisit Solomon again, but we're going to see something happen to the nation of Israel. So 1 Kings chapter 12, and then we're going to work backwards back into chapter 11 and see how we got to the place that we're about to discover Israel is that? Let's pray as we start. So, Father, we come and we ask that you would open our hearts, our minds, our souls to you this morning. That you are a good and gracious and merciful Father. Some of us have walked into the room and we think you are a harsh punisher. But, Father, I pray that we would see that in the midst of discipline, you are merciful and you are gracious. You are trying to win our hearts back. For many of us have gone astray. We have let our hearts be succumbed to the world. And Father, you want your kids back. You want their hearts. You want their lives. So I pray that this morning you would do that. That you would draw us to your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 12, starting verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, we'll get into that here, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? David is Jesse's son. To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah... Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adiram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. Uh-oh, problem. Opening scene of the act. Husband and wife are in the room together. It is a knockdown, drag-out fight. 
I dare ask how many couples have been in one of those before. Where the scene in the house, there is tension, there is yelling, there is screaming, there is cursing, there is get out of my house, and one of the spouses goes to the bedroom, packs their luggage, gets their suitcase, gets their pillow, gets their toothbrush, and they walk out of the house never to return. Opening scene of the act. Problem. I thought just last week we were talking about Solomon, there was peace in the land. Like everybody was getting along with each other. In fact, God waited to build his temple for Solomon because you know what Solomon's name means? Man of peace. There was peace just a day ago. And the next day you're having a knockdown drag out where one is leaving the house with all their belongings. What just happened? Opening scene. And then I love it in TV shows. Three days earlier, it shows you what happened. Let's do this. Three days earlier, this is what happened. This is how we got to the divorce. This is how we got to the mess. This is how we got to Israel. We'll take a look at going home and Judah staying where they are. And now they are not in a loving communion with one another anymore. How did it happen? If you've been with us, we've been talking about the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is the events that are taking place on this earth. Things that are happening in everyday lives. Everybody in this room had a lower story this week. That things were happening in your life. The upper story is what God is doing in the midst of the lower story. God is doing something greater than we could ever imagine in his upper story. But let's start with the lower story. There's a lot here to cover. And so bear with me. We're going to walk through a lot of scripture today in 1 Kings 11 and 12. And come to the place where we realize what's going on in the lower story. And then at the end, I'll give you the upper story of what God's really up to. 1 Kings chapter 11. Let's rehash where we were last week at the end. Let's do this together. 1 Kings 11. Let's be floored again at King Solomon and what is going on in his house. Verse 1. So King Solomon, however... Love many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Here we go. He had again 700 Wives of royal birth. And he had another 300 concubines that he slept with when he wanted to. But what happened? His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
he did not follow the Lord completely as his David, his father, had done. And on a, east hill, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Melech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Problem. Problem. The divorce was happening in chapter 12, but how did we get here? Let's go backwards. Solomon had some issues. Most of us would say he had lust issues, right? Come on. A thousand ladies? You think you might have some lust issues going on, but let me maybe throw this bone out to you. Maybe he had a deeper issue. Maybe he had a trust issue with God. You got this down. You can mark this down in your bulletin if you want. But sin comes from disbelief in God and his promises. Sin, when you and I sin, it's actually we don't trust God and his promises. Simple as that. Goes back to the Garden of Eden. The man had a thousand women, so we think, man, he had a lust issue. The boy has some good libido, you know what I mean? Thousand wives? Craziness. Craziness. Think about that. But as I read this again this week, I think there was something deeper than the guy had lust issues. I think he had trust issues. I don't think he really believed God and his promises the way he did from the very beginning. Here's why. Anybody notice what it said here? He had seven wives from what? Anybody catch the little phrase there? From what? Royal birth. What does that mean? That's a weird statement for the Bible to throw in, that he had 700 wives from a royal birth. What, what, what does that mean? Let me give you what it means. Solomon means a man of peace. He wanted peace throughout the land. So the only way to have peace is to do what? To make treaties with other nations. If you were with us last week in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, we saw that he made a treaty with Egypt, which he was not supposed to go back to Egypt. We took a look at that last week. But 700 wives from royal birth means this. The man was out to seek peace, and so he made treaties with all these nations. And one of the rules was this. When you made a treaty with the other nation, and you were the more powerful nation, which Israel was, they would give you one of the, the, the king would give you one of his daughters in marriage as a sign of peace. So Solomon, here's what he's doing. He's politically getting in with the other nations. And so he accumulates 700 wives from royal birth because the man is a politician. Here's the problem, though. Solomon went for political gain to get what only God could give him. Sound familiar in the nation of America? We want the politicians to do what only God can do. We put our trust in some politicians who lie through their face compared to a God who has promises that he keeps. Sound familiar? This is what Solomon is doing. He wants peace, and so he makes treaties with all these other nations. When the problem lies here, God said from the very beginning to Solomon, I will be your security, Solomon. 
I will be your peace. These other nations are not to be your peace and your security. I am. I'm your refuge. I'm your fortress. I am your strong tower, Solomon. But Solomon, deep down, didn't believe what God said. And so he did what? He said, God, I don't need you. I've got 700 treaties with 700 nations. I've got all these wives to prove it, God. I don't really need you. Trust issues, not lust issues. And so Solomon is telling him, I don't really trust you, God. Lower story, how about you? Do you trust God with everything? Seriously. It, between you and God this morning, let's ask some deeper questions. Do you trust him with your romantic life? It's right here in the story, so let's just dive in. Anybody see one of the problems with Solomon's romantic life? He grabbed ladies that he was not supposed to. God told him not to intermarry with all these other nations. Guess what he did? He, inter he intermarried with them. Let's get into a real touchy subject right off the bat. Let's do this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's going to sound harsh, but God has a reason for it. He does not want you to intermarry with a non-believer. He says in Corinthians, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. Do not put the harness on like oxen do with an unbeliever. Why? Why? He's being mean. He's harsh. No, he's wise. Because the non-believer is going to try to pull you away from your relationship with Jesus. No, they don't. Oh, they subtly do. Hey, let's sleep in this morning rather than go to church. Hey, let's hit the sack before marriage. Let's do this, let's do that. I'm not trying to be mean to non-believers. It's just the truth. Your heart's not been gravitated toward Jesus yet. You live for yourself. You live for your own pleasures. And he's going to, they're going to pull you the other direction, subtly. For some of you, you are with a non-believer right now. And, and, and here's, the, here's the awkwardness in the room, right? Some of you have walked in with a non-believer in the room right now. And you're a Christian, they're non-Christian. And let's just be honest, why'd you bring them in here? Come on, we're in church, we're going to be honest. You want them to change. Now, how many of you want to be with somebody who just constantly nags you to change? I heard one pastor say it this week, I thought it was intriguing. He said, even their parents want you to change. Guys, there's a reason God wants you to marry a believer. Because when two believers come together, the relationship is strengthened underneath Christ. Christ wants strengthened marriages. He wants marriages underneath the headship of Christ. Let's go to another one. Let's get even dicier. How about your finances? Do you trust God with your finances? Or is the money yours? It's my money. It's my money. My money. My money. My money. 
Or do you see it as it's all God's money and he has stewarded it to me so that I can what? I can use it for his kingdom and for his glory. Are you a tightwad with your money and only spend on what you want? Are you a giver, someone who gives generously to others, gives generously to church, gives generously to those parachurches that are doing great work for the kingdom? Are you a giver or are you a hoarder with your money? I always say it, someone just repeats to me, you, you say this a lot. If I went and checked your bank account, we could tell what you really trust in. Because there's truth to that. If we, looked at look, if we took a look at your checkbook, and I know checkbooks are outdated, but if we went into what? Your bank account, we could tell you what you really trust. It's scary. It's something to look in the mirror. Do we really trust God with our finances? This one hit me last night. Maybe this is for you. I don't know. God just hit me. I changed something. I just went into it. Do you trust God's provisions for you? I almost felt like last night God was saying, somebody in this room does not trust what I have been giving them. They think that I am being stingy with them. God has provided someone or something for you, and you are being ungracious, you are being unthankful about it, and God's going, I'm giving those provisions for a reason. Do you trust that what I'm giving you is enough? Or do you think I'm being stingy? Do you trust God? Solomon right here in the lower story had a problem trusting God. Let's keep reading. 1 Kings 11, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. If you remember last week, we talked about God's warnings. He came twice to Solomon to warn him. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, listen, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give it to one of your subordinates. Notice the promise there from God. We'll see it here in a minute. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the in the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom away from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Lower story. Solomon disobeys God. Sin always has consequences. Anybody notice it? He's stripping away the kingdom. But in our minds, here's what happened, and I think this happened in Solomon's minds, we really wrestle with that whole idea that sin has consequences. Let me give you some phrases we oftentimes use. Nothing bad will happen to me. What's the worst that can really happen? Really, what harm is this poor decision I'm about to make going to have on my life? One of my favorites is this. Let me list the pros and the cons before I make that decision. Anybody ever done the pros and cons? You split the paper in half. You put the pros over here. You put the cons over here. We usually do it with a big decision financially, go to college, whatever it may be. Some of you will do it with marriage. Let me just, can I just be honest? If you have to do that over marriage, please don't marry the person. We giggle, but I have met people who are about to marry somebody and they go, pros and cons. That's probably not going to work out very well. 
But here's what we really want to know on the pros and cons, right? Do the pros outweigh the cons? Some of us do that with the decision we're going to make. The decision we're going to make, we go, is it really going to end up that badly? Nah, that's not that bad of a consequence. One of my favorites is this in the church. God is full of grace, so he'll look past my poor decisions. One of the things that Aaron and I have talked about is parenting. We've read it. How to allow your kids to have natural consequences. You realize that God allows you, even in the midst of grace, to deal with natural consequences. And here we see Solomon is going to have consequences to his decision. The kingdom will be torn away from him. Can I say this? No one talks to you more than you. Do you know that you have the most vocal point in your own life? You talk to yourself constantly and you don't even realize it. Subconsciously right now, you're talking to yourself and you don't even realize it. Oh my gosh, please end this sermon. Oh my gosh, my stomach's hungry. Oh my gosh, I wish I could just get out of here. Oh my gosh, I can't wait till later tonight. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for the video game to come out. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And your mind is, and you don't even realize, you're like, man, where do those thoughts come from? You, you talk to you more than you realize. And here I think Solomon talked himself into some of these poor decisions. The sin that's in his life. And Solomon's sin, it's going to cost him. And if you were with us before, his father David with Bathsheba. You, you guys remember the story? David, Bathsheba, David sees her on the rooftop bathing, thinks she's hot, goes get the servant, says go get her, brings him, gets her pregnant, and then does what? And then tries to cover it up with Uriah. And God sends Nathan graciously to David and says that the Lord will forgive you, but the boy that she is, what, carrying is going to die. It happened with David. It's happening with Solomon. And Solomon will lose his grip on the kingdom of Israel. It's just going to happen, consequences. And some of us in this room right now, we're calculating, even our heads right now, we're weighing the cost of our decisions. And honestly, I think Solomon thought it, and I think a lot of us think it, we think we're bulletproof. I think some of us in this room right now, we've walked in with an arrogance about us that thinks that we can make decisions and it will not harm us. Some of us are this selfish. We think that if it only harms me, it's not that big of a deal. But what we're about to see is it not just harms you. Your sin does not only affect you. Your sin affects the people around you. I'm trying to learn that as a father. My decisions affect my wife and they affect my kids. And sadly, they're going to affect my grandkids, and my grandkids don't even know it yet. My sin always is what? Affecting the people around me. It's always being trickled down. And here's what we see. You ready? As we continue to go down in the story. So how is it going to be ripped out? God is going to send adversaries, enemies, Solomon's way. And we'll see in chapter 11, verse 14, that he raises up Hadad. That's a cool name, isn't it? 
Hey, Dad. Okay, sorry, side note. But he raises up Hadot, and Razan is next. But then there's one name that I want you to focus on in this passage. His name is Jeroboam. And it's pretty intense here that God is going to raise up an enemy named Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is going to come from where? Anybody know? Inside of Solomon's cabinet. Inside of his own kingdom is going to raise up a guy named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is one of his officials, and he's going to rise up against the king, against Solomon, and he's going to be a thorn in the flesh to Solomon. Let me read about him. 1 Kings 11, 29 through 32. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way. He was wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it in two. How many pieces? Note this. I love the Bible. It gives you specifics. Twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take ten pieces for yourself. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, and I'm going to give you, Jeroboam, how many tribes? Ten tribes. How many tribes are, are, are in Israel? Anybody know? Twelve tribes of Israel. He says to Jeroboam, I'm going to give you ten. But for the sake of my servant David in the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Anybody? Anybody stop and pause and go, hmm, mathematician. Ten tribes for Jeroboam. One tribe for Judah. Twelve tribes. What happened to the other tribe? Anybody? Read that and go, mathematicians. I'm not, you know, not the most skilled mathematician, but ten plus one at Western Brown may equal eleven, but at Williamsburg it equals twelve, or may equal twelve, but at Williamsburg it equals what? Eleven. Sorry, Western Brown, I just give you a hard time. Where's the other tribe? I'm going to give you just a little history here of what happened. The tribe of Benjamin, which Jerusalem is in, began to just become what? One with the tribe of Judah of the southern region. So Israel began to say that Benjamin was already a part of Judah. That's where you get that. So this idea that Benjamin's there, but it's already been absorbed into Judah, which is important, as we'll see later. Verse 37. Go down a little bit. Verse 37. He says this, However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. And Jeroboam, you will be king over Israel. So God is going to raise up adversaries as part of the consequences to Solomon's sin. Do you realize that sometimes God raises up adversaries in your own life? As consequences of your sin. And we go kicking and screaming and stomping, God, this is not fair, this is not fair, this is not fair, you're being mean, you're just being a big mean bully up in the sky. Quit, God. And God goes, son, you don't have a clue. This is mercy. Mercy. 
This right here, the adversaries, is mercy for Solomon. It sounds like punishment. Ultimately, it is mercy by God. Let me explain. When Solomon sleeps with all these ladies and his heart is turned away from the Lord, what could God have done right in that moment? Bye. Do you notice that God's heart was angered at Solomon? And if God is big enough, and we believe he's big enough, he could have done this in a moment. He could have just snatched Solomon up and said, done with you, boy. But instead, he did what? He raised up adversaries, and here's why. God is trying to turn Solomon's heart back to him. And he knows that a stubborn heart needs what? Adversaries. The place that you come to the end of yourself. The place you go, okay, God, I'm done playing games with you. I realize that you are bigger than I am. I realize that you are stronger than I am. And I realize that you are better than I am. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me take us back there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. Endure hardship as discipline. Who's he speaking to, first of all? The church. They're scattered. There's persecution going on. They are being beaten down by others. Do you realize this happening in our world today? As you sit in your cushy seat, listening to a message, there are people in China right now who are running behind closed doors being in fear that if they get caught, they will be put in prison right now. There are people in Iran right now that if they are caught for their faith in Jesus, they will be stoned to death. They will be beheaded. Do you realize that? This is what's happening to these Christians. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Endure hardship as discipline. Anybody have hardship in your life right now? Come on, anybody having a hard time right now? Anybody had a hard time lately? Yes, he says, endure it as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. <laughs> Any kids in the house, no dad disciplines? Dad, dad grounds you. Dad takes things away. Meanie. But we respect them for it. Hey, hey, young people, listen to me. You don't respect them now. When you become a parent and you have your own kids, you're going to look back and go, ah, I see what they were doing. They actually love me. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our what? Come on. Good, God is out for your good, God is out for your good, God is out for your good. You better get that in your head, I'm telling you. I've, I've thought this before, I just thought it last week, I'm like, God, I don't like what's going on. I'm like, I don't think you're for me. And, and then I, I read a book, I'm reading a book on the unhurried leader, and he, and he went through Romans 8, and he talked about this, that God is for us, he's for you, he's working for your good. In order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. 
But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hey, Solomon, God is trying to turn your heart back to his holiness. He's trying to turn your heart back to himself. He's trying to get you to come back around. It is mercy that God is dealing with you this way. I read about it in one of my bands that I've been hooked on is King's Kaleidoscope. I don't even know what kind of music it is. It's a little bit of rap. It's a little bit of reggae. It's a little bit, I don't know, it's all sorts of stuff. And, and one of the things I noticed was uh, their lead singer, I was reading an article about him. And he said this in, in the article with Relevant Magazine. He said that he, he suffers from severe anxiety disorder. I thought that was interesting. As a lead singer of a band, when you go on tour and you go on stage, if you have severe anxiety disorder on stage, that would be hard, wouldn't it? And he said this, I was praying that God would take it away. And a year and a half ago, he said God took it away. One day I just was like, what the heck? I don't feel this anxiety in my spirit anymore. He goes, I went for a year and a half without this severe anxiety disorder. Weird. But he said in the midst of the year and a half, he said his passion for Jesus started to wane. He's like, man, something just, my, my spirit was off. Something was going on. And so they wrote this album called Zeal. You can look it up. It's called Zeal, King's Kaleidoscope. And he's, there's a little commentary in the middle of the album and he talks about what was happening. He said he lost his passion for Jesus. He lost his passion for the Lord. He didn't know where he was. He felt confused inside. And so he writes this album. He said in the interview, he goes this, a week and a half after we wrote the album and released it, my anxiety disorder came back like that. And here's what he said. When it came back, I realized it was a blessing from the Lord. I'm like, what? Chad, how do, you, how, do you, how do you think that's a blessing? He goes, here's why. He goes, because my relationship with Jesus took off again. He goes, I became dependent on the Lord again. And he goes, every day I wake up with this anxiety disorder, and he goes, I have to be on my knees begging and pleading with God to walk with me through the day. Some of you right now in this room, I don't pray for it, but here's what's going to happen. God is going to give you some hardship, and here's his goal. He wants you to cling to him with everything that you have. He wants you on your knees begging at a wailing wall. He wants to have you beg and plead with him to give you the energy and the strength today. And watch what he does. He will walk with you through the valley. He will walk with you in the midst of the pain. He will walk with you along that journey. Because here's why. Because Jesus did the same thing on the road to Calvary. He had his own valley, and he walked it. The third thing I want you to get from this passage on the lower story is this. Who are you going to listen to? Let's go to chapter 12. Let me read these verses. Chapter 12. Rehoboam, verse 1, went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, so they sent for Jeroboam. And he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father has put a heavy yoke on us, Solomon has, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, If today... 
you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. So he asked them, hey guys, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, listen, the yoke your father put on us. Lighten the yoke your father's put on us. The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, but I will make it even heavier. My father scored you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days after, later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your, your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. Your father's, my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord. Anybody I want to highlight, underline that? This was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of the bat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. I'm going to rehash what we talked about last week. Who are you listening to? Who has your ear? Who is it? Who speaks into you? Whose advice are you listening to? This sounds eerily familiar because last week we talked about this with Solomon. The Solomon, the Pharaoh of Egypt and his daughter had his ear. All of his wives had his ears. And he listened to them and he went down a dark path. Rehoboam has the elders of whom? Anybody notice that? The elders of whom? Solomon, who give him advice. The very guys that watched Solomon fall down and destroy his kingship. Now give him advice. He has their advice that they've seen how Solomon's gone. And here's what he does. Eh. They say, listen to the people. He goes, eh. Let me go find the young guys that I run with. And see what they say. Who has your ears? Young people, please listen to me for a quick second. I know your parents and your grandparents are OLD. I know they are. I know that your parents and your grandparents are so not cool. I know that. Carson reminds me all the time that, Dad, you're not cool. I get it. I know that Carson Avery, look at Dad and go, you're lame. I know, young people, that you think your parents have no clue about life. No clue about what you're going through. But what if you're wrong? Parents in the house, let's go. How many parents in the house have made dumb decisions in your life before? Yeah. Young people looking around the room. OLD people have made dumb decisions in their lives. Parents have let what? Friends influence you into doing dumb decisions when you were teenagers. Correct, parents? Come on. Dumb decisions? Yes? Yes? 
And I know you don't believe it, but they have felt the pressure that society puts on them. And so young people, can I give you a piece of advice? It's so uncool. I know. It's so lame. Please listen to them. Can I tell you this? Most parents, most parents, I know not all parents, but most parents really want the good for their kids. Because we love you. I know we're not cool. I know we're lame, but we really do want your good for you. Rehoboam had a chance to listen to the elders, to the old people, the OLD people, who are lame and probably uncool, and he didn't do it. Older people, can I talk to you for a second? And nobody's going to raise their hand if I ask who the older people are in the room. Hey, guys, those of us who are older, you're still not too old to receive advice and wisdom from others. I know you think you've been through life enough that you're probably just going to do things your way. But can I ask you, would you humble yourself and receive words of wisdom and advice from your friends and your peers? Can I encourage some of the older, older people in the room? This has really been a burden for Aaron and I recently. We've been talking about it. It's been a burden of mine for a while. Titus chapter 2 has been a burden on my mind for a long time in the church. Paul writes to Titus that the older men would take the younger men instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And he said, the older ladies take the younger ladies and advise them and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And here's what I've seen in the church in America. I've seen our church. I've seen it in lots of churches. This is not happening, and it breaks my heart. And I don't know where the disconnect is between the younger generation and the older generation. And I don't know have all the solutions, but I know this. Older people, older, older people, Please, please, please reach out to some of the younger people. And you will look OLD and lame. But by the grace of God, they will listen to you one day. But there needs to be instruction from the older generation to the younger generation. And I get this as a pastor. Why do you not have middle school and high school group during church service? Because the younger people want it. And here's my old way in me. You don't always get what you want. And two, I think it's beneficial for our young people to be in this room. I love watching. I'm, I'm sitting, staying up here watching this. I love when teenagers sit next to their parents in church. I love when we take communion together and we pass the tray and when the young person makes a decision for Jesus and they take the bread and they take the cup next to their mom and dad, I love to watch it. Why? Because you are feeding into them, parents. You're feeding, you are discipling this morning. You are telling them what matters in your life this morning. Jesus matters. I had it the other night at the prayer. I got a text from someone who had a little baby. And they said, do you think the baby will be a, a bother to the service? I said, who cares? Bring the baby in. They're like, wow, you seem adamant about this. I am. Because when we pray together, you're telling that little one-year-old that prayer matters. You're speaking into their life. 
right there. That little child doesn't know it, but there's a seed that is being planted in their very soul because mom and dad are praying with that child. There is a seed that is being planted. It's happening. And so it matters. It does. I'm passionate about this. If you can't tell, this is something that grabs my heart. That I'm watching teenagers take over youth group and it excites my heart. Because it's their group ultimately, right? And Jesus is going to do something even now with them. And he's going to produce something there. When they get to be adults, they're going to run the church. And it's going to be something beautiful because God did something when they were a little toddler all the way up to high school. And God is doing something in their life. So please listen to the advice. The upper story, let's finish with this. Let me give you the upper story theme through all this. Some of you are like, what is the upper story theme? What is God up to? Here it is. God hates sin, but he will use it for redemption. God hates sin, but he will use it for redemption. Let me give you two things about redemption here. All the wisdom and the wealth in the world will not redeem you and save you. You mean my 401k will not save me? You have a soul that is deep within you. That only can be touched by God. Solomon was the wealthiest man ever to live. He made Bill Gates look poor. And in the end, guess what happened to his wealth? And his wisdom. Bye-bye. Gone. For some of you who are stockpiling, you are trying to make things work. Because you really ultimately think that if you have enough wisdom, if you have enough ability, if you have enough wealth, that it will save you in the end. It will not. It is going to your kids, and I always say they will blow your money. And I look forward to it with my parents' money. Two, some of you are looking for a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, kids, whatever it may be, to save you. No man can save you. Here's the example. Jeroboam is going to be king of northern tribes of Israel. Everybody is, yay, Jeroboam, we finally got a king. And this king, Jeroboam, he seems like an awesome guy, and he's going to lead us into the future. Jeroboam, you've got our back. We've got your back. You've got it. Let's go for it. And if you read down in verses 25 through 30, here's what Jeroboam does. He disobeyed God, and he puts up two golden calves. Does that sound familiar? And he turns the heart of the people of the northern tribes to foreign pagan gods. The guy who was supposed to save them actually crushes them. Your wife, your husband, your kids was never meant to be your savior. If you look to them for your security, for your purpose in life, whatever it may be, they're going to disappoint you, they're going to turn their back on you, and a tragedy will strike. No man was ever supposed to be your savior, which leads us to this. If you caught it in the story, there's a little subtle hint that this whole story is pointing us toward one direction. His name is Jesus. 
1 Kings eleven thirteen, when God gives Solomon some instruction about what's going to, he's going to tear from his hand, he says something interesting here. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. What is that one tribe? Judah. Guess where Jesus is coming from? Judah. Bing, 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 bing. God is saying this, in the midst of all your sin, I still have a game plan. And my game plan is bigger than your sin. My game plan trumps anything that you do in your life. Because my plan far exceeds what you have going on in life. Because I am God and you are not. I know what's going on. And so he says, I'm going to reserve one tribe. And this guy named Jesus come from the one tribe. And he will be what? A salvation for all people. Including you and me this morning. He wants to be your savior this morning. Some of you want him just to be a nice teaching guru. He's not a teaching guru. His teachings are nice, but that's not why he came to teach. Some of you want him to be your magic little pet that when you scratch his head, he is a genie in a bottle and he comes out and gives you your every wish. He will not be that for you, but he will be one thing. He will be savior. He will be Lord in your life. That's what he wants. And this whole story, guys, behind the scenes, God is doing a work to lead us to the lineage of Jesus to show us that Jesus is greater than Solomon, Jeroboam, or anything else. Jesus is better. Will you trust him is the question this morning. Will you trust him with your entire life? Your finances, your relationships, everything, will you trust him this morning? Some of you just need to surrender this morning. You've been trying to do life on your own. You've been trying to do your finances. You've been trying to do relationships on your own. You've been trying to do all this on your own. And this morning, God is saying, will you surrender over to me everything because I have a greater purpose and game plan than you'll ever dream about. And I'm for you this morning. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you and we thank you for who you are. Father, thank you that your purposes and your plans are way bigger than we could ever imagine. That in the midst of my sin, Father, you are at work. One, Father, you want to change my heart. You want to change what's going on, on the inside. But two, Father, you have a greater purpose that even in the midst of my sin, you are carrying out this message, this hope to the people around me. That Jesus will be glorified in the midst of all the stuff going on in my life. Jesus will be glorified. Because Jesus, honestly, your name is worthy. Your name is higher. Your name is greater than anything else in this world. So Jesus, this morning, would you have your way amongst us? Would you turn hearts toward you? That Jesus, you know what's best for them. You have great plans for them. You desire good for their lives. So Lord, give us the faith to believe that this morning. Jesus, we need you. We long for you. And we ask that you would be near us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.